Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, An Anchor for the Soul, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Hebrews. Here's Pastor Nick. Now, I don't know what that looked like, but I just like to imagine that God made him some pretty sweet leather pants. But uh, if you think about it, and you think about how this works with, with animals and stuff, there's only one way to get the skins off of the animals, and it's not by asking them politely. You actually have to kill them. You have to kill those animals, those furry, cute little things, now had to die not because of something that they did, but because of something that these other people did. On the one hand, Adam and Eve must have felt better because now their nakedness is covered up, they're clothed. But on the other hand, now they had one more thing to feel guilty about, didn't they? Because their actions had resulted in the death of these innocent creatures. And so if they didn't feel guilty before, they absolutely felt guilty now. And now they've got clothes on their bodies, but they've also got blood on their hands. That blood represents guilt, blood on your hands. Did you know that phrase actually comes directly from the Bible? Isaiah 59, it says this. It says, your sins have separated you from your God and your hands are stained with blood and your fingers with guilt. And did you know that William Shakespeare, he took that same concept, that verse of the Bible, he took that concept of blood on your hands and, and guilt on your fingers and he wrote a play about it. And he illustrated it for us very vividly, this idea of blood on your hands and guilt. He illustrated it in his play, Macbeth. Now, how many of you remember 10th grade and reading Macbeth? I remember that my class read Macbeth, but I didn't. So I went back and I actually read it this past week. And so for those of you who don't remember it, it's a very dramatic story. And it's been used as a, as a basis for a lot of movies and, and TV series. And the story is a, is a really dramatic one. So here's, here's what it's about. It's about this Scottish lord. He's a Scottish nobleman named Macbeth and his wife, Lady Macbeth. And one day, Macbeth is given a prophecy by a group of witches, and they tell him that someday he's going to be the king. And so he gets excited about that, and he goes home and he tells his wife, Lady Macbeth, about this prophecy. And this just totally captivates her imagination. Wow, I might be queen one day. And she becomes totally infatuated with and obsessed with this idea of becoming queen. And to the point where she becomes so power hungry that she's willing to do anything it takes in order to become queen, even if it means committing murder. And so she pushes her husband and she kind of is this driving force behind her husband and she pushes him and pushes him. And they come up with this plan of how they're going to murder the queen so they can insert themselves as king and queen and get in power. And they actually go through with it. Lady Macbeth drives her husband and and kind of pushes him to go and murder the king in his sleep. And he does. And they get away with it. And he becomes king and she becomes queen. But of course, there are some people who kind of become privy to what happened or or maybe people who are threatening their power. And so what do you got to do to stay in power? You have to kill those people too. And so in the end, they get what they wanted. They become king and queen. They, they rise to power, but they've got blood on their hands and they begin to be haunted by what they've done. And Lady Macbeth particularly, she's racked with guilt to the point where she begins having nightmares and she begins walking the house in her sleep at night and having these visions when she's not even asleep that she has blood on her hands and she can't wash it off no matter what she does. And it's a picture, it's a description of that feeling of guilt when you've done something that you shouldn't have done and you can't undo it. 
See, later on in the Bible, when Adam and Eve have children, their firstborn son, his name is Cain, and he murders his younger brother named Abel. And God says to him there in Genesis chapter four, he says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God is saying, hey, even if no one else knows what you did, I know about it. You can't hide it from me and justice must be done. Someone has to pay for what you've done. See, this idea is that our wrong actions have a price. They have a cost. There's a cost associated with our actions. And this was something that was taught very clearly and very vividly to the people through the sacrificial system was that your actions have a cost. They have a price. When you sin, you have to do something. When you become unclean, you have to do something to make yourself right. You can't, it can't just be, you know, okay, fine. No, something has to be done. A price has to be paid. Your sins have to be atoned for. And the only way to do that is through the shedding of blood. And what would happen is they would take an innocent creature and that innocent creature's blood would be shed on your behalf. They would essentially stand in for you. They would take your place and they would die because of what you did. Again, if you didn't feel guilty before, you certainly would now. You see, you learned a very important lesson through this sacrificial system, and that is that your actions don't only affect you, they affect a lot of other people as well. If I do something wrong, it's not going to only affect me, it's going to affect my wife and my kids and a lot of other people who are around me or connected to me. There's a price that will be paid for our actions. And seeing an innocent creature die for what I did, think about how that would affect you. Think about how that would affect your mind. Wouldn't it make you think twice next time before you decided to do something. But here's the thing that I think often gets overlooked in this whole thing, is that animals were, and still are, very expensive, right? So like, think about this. Most people in those days, they didn't have bank accounts and investment accounts, and so they would keep their money in their assets. And one of the main assets that people kept was livestock, and those were liquid assets, you know, that could be traded or could be dealt with. If you had a lot of animals, that was like having a lot of money in the bank. Now, right now in Denver, they're having the National Western Stock Show. So I went on the internet and did a little research. The average price for a bull at the National Western Stock Show, if you're going to go down there, is $4,000 to $5,000. So a bull was one of the animals that was required for uh, atonement for sin, for sacrifice. So $4,000 or $5,000, somewhere in that range. Now imagine if every time you sinned, you got a bill in the mail for $4,000. Do you think that that would change the way that you think about your actions? See, one of the best ways to get a person's attention is to hit them where it hurts, right in the pocketbook. And that's what the sacrificial system did. One of the things that blood represented was that when you sin, there's a cost, there's a price that must be paid. And if you're unable to pay that price, well, then what happens? You accumulate a debt. See, blood represented guilt and debt. It also represented defilement. See, blood speaks of defilement because blood represents death. According to the Old Testament law, if you touched a dead body, whether that was a human animal or human or an animal body, uh, touching a dead body would defile you. And so... Think about this. In order for you, the only way for your sin to be atoned for was through sacrifice. In order for you to become clean, in other words, that means that it requires another person to become defiled so that you can become clean. Now just let that simmer in your mind for a little bit. The priest became defiled in order that you could be cleansed. And that's a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of what Jesus did for us. So blood, on the negative side, it represents death. It speaks of brokenness and guilt and defilement and the cost of sin. But on the other hand, blood 
represents something very positive. And so that brings us to our second point, which is the extent of God's love. See, not only did blood represent something very negative, it also represented something very positive. Blood represents life. The Bible says that life is in the blood. You can't be alive. If you don't have any blood in you, you're not going to be alive. Blood represents life. If you've ever seen a baby being born, there's a lot of blood involved. And all of us, that's how we came into the world. We came into the world through the shedding of blood. When someone sheds their blood voluntarily, it is a sacrificial act. It is a life-giving sacrificial act through which you give life to another person. Here's what the Bible tells us. It tells us that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says, this is how we know what love is. This is how we know what true love looks like. He says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. See, when we talk about blood, not only does it show us the depth of our problem, it also shows us the extent of God's love. It's through the shedding of Jesus's blood that we are born again to new life spiritually. This is the most affirming, positive message in the world, that God loves you so much that he was willing to die for you. Jesus told his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that they would lay down their life for their friends. So the gospel, it both affirms that sin is really, really bad and that God's love is really, really big. See, the message of the gospel is that your sin, my sin, it's so serious that God himself had to die for you, but that he loves you so much that he was glad to die for you. And that brings to our third and final point, which is this, how this changes everything, how this changes everything. This changes everything for three reasons. Number one, it changes everything because it means that you can be truly forgiven. You can be truly forgiven. Verse 22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You know, there are a lot of people today who who sense their sin, but they try to deal with it in a lot of different ways. They think that, you know, the way that God deals with sin is in various different ways. So for example, one way that people would say that God deals with sin is by simply overlooking it, right? Just kind of um, ollie ollie oxen free type of thing, right? That all those uh, commandments and the things that he said, were more like suggestions. And if you do them or don't do them, doesn't really matter. But see, that, that neglects, it overlooks the fact that God is absolutely a God of love. And at the same time, he's also a God who is righteous and just, and he can't just overlook sin. He can't just say that it's no big deal. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. Pastor Nick has written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, Pastor Nick deals directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there any actual proof that God exists or that the Bible is trustworthy? Pastor Nick addresses these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or has concerns about these topics. And it is a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Christianity, wherever books are sold or visit nickkady.org. To celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as our gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now, back to today's message. Or some people would say that maybe a way that sin is forgiven is through contrition. 
right? Contrition, like as long as you feel really, really, really bad about what you did, and as long as you say you're sorry, then it's gonna be okay. But I'm here to tell you that itself is not even enough. Other people tend to say, well, you know, if you live a decent life, then your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds and they'll cancel out your guilt. Or they might say that, you know, forgiveness can be earned through religious observances. Others might say that, well, just the passing of time, you know, enough time goes by and it becomes water under the bridge. But what this is saying is that no, none of those things can erase your sins. Maybe some of you heard in the news this week, there was a man in Redding, California, who walked in and turned himself in for a murder that he committed 25 years ago. This man had literally gotten away with murder. If he hadn't said anything, they would have never found him because they weren't looking for him anymore. He got away with murder. No one would have ever known. He would have just continued living his life. But he, in an interview that he did right before he was arrested, he said that the reason he was turning himself in was because he recently became a Christian. And he says that I know now that God forgives me for what I did. And I know now that the right thing to do is to turn myself in. See, in this interview, he, he talked about how for years, for 25 years, he had felt remorse. He had felt guilt and regret over what he had done. But he realized that no amount of feeling bad about what he had done, no amount of good deeds to make up for it, no amount of time could take away what he had done. He realized the only way for him to be forgiven was to turn to Jesus and receive by faith what Jesus had done for him on the cross. Because as we're told here, there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, and there's no perfect forgiveness without a perfect sacrifice. He says in verse 23 that all the animal sacrifices that were part of the Jewish system, they were pictures and foreshadowings of Jesus and what Jesus would do when Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died a substitutionary death. And it says in verse 24, I love this, it says that Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus went and stood before God on your behalf. He took your place before the judgment seat of God so that you could be forgiven completely. In verses 25 and 26, it says that in the former system, if you sinned, then you had to make a sacrifice. And then you were good, of course, until you sinned again, which was hopefully not too soon after, but probably within, I don't know, half an hour. So there you go. Then you get another bill in the mail. And then you've got to make another sacrifice, then another sacrifice. And that would tide you over until the next time you sinned. Again, another half an hour. And then you're just incurring this incredible debt. There's no way you will ever be able to pay. You can imagine it's kind of like putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound, right? You're just going to have to keep changing that thing out. It's not going to be fixing the problem at all. It'll just be absorbing a little bit of the blood, but not healing the wound. Jesus' sacrifice, though, is different. Jesus' sacrifice gets to the root. It heals the problem. He is the perfect sacrifice. Verse 26 says, He appeared once and for all to put away sin forever by sacrificing himself. Verse 27 says this, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ has been offered once to bear the sin of many. That tells us two very important things. First of all, it tells us that Jesus died to make the final and ultimate sacrifice. That's why he declared, it is finished. And that what that means for you is that every wrong deed, past, present, and future, he already paid for them all. If you sin next week, he doesn't need to be crucified again. He's already paid the price for that sin too, once and for all. But this verse tells us something else that's really important, that you've only got one life to live. Do you know that? The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. And it also, on a, on a very somber and sobering note, it doesn't teach a second chance after you've died. It says very plainly here, it is appointed for you once to die, and after that comes judgment. 
And maybe there's some of you here, some of you listening to this, and, and you know that God has been calling you. God is drawing you to himself, but you're dragging your feet. You're resisting. You're kind of holding off. And you say, maybe one day, but not, not today. Someday I'll surrender to God, but not yet. I want you to understand how serious this is making it, that once you die, there's no second chance. There's no way to change your status. So I want to encourage you, don't wait. If you haven't yet done that, if you haven't put down your yes, make sure that today is the day you put your faith in Jesus and what he did for you. He took the judgment so that you could be forgiven completely. Secondly, the reason this changes everything is because it means that you can receive an inheritance. So this brings us back to where the, this section starts in verse 15, 16, and 17. And what he says there, he talks about how the way Jesus' death works is kind of like works for us. It's kind of like uh, how a will works. So meaning a will as in a last will and testament, that document that determines who gets your stuff when you die. And he points out that a will only comes into effect once the person has died. And in the same way, Jesus had to die in order for us to receive his riches. See, the inheritance which he gives us is his status, his standing before God. And that is credited to your account. It's something that you receive like an inheritance. So an inheritance, think about that. You don't work for an inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance. It's something that is given to you as an act of benevolence. And the only way you get it is if another person dies. You know, you can imagine that person who's poor and broke and just scraping by, barely making it, but one of their relatives dies and then instantly they become wealthy because they've inherited someone else's wealth. They didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. It was just given to them because someone else died. And that is a picture of what God has done for us in Jesus. We were bankrupt spiritually. We had a debt before God that we could not pay. And God looked upon your desperate situation. He saw what you, where you were at. And here's what he did. He wrote you into his will. And then he came to earth and he died so that you, what he has, might become yours. And not only does it pay off your debt, but it abundantly is more than you could even ask or imagine. Right standing with God, the Holy Spirit to guide you and to transform you. Eternal life with him. What Jesus' death means for you is an incredible inheritance. And then finally, this changes everything because it means that you can have a new destiny. It means that you can have a new destiny. Notice the last verse of chapter 9, verse 28. It says that Jesus will come again one day. And when he does, it will not be to make atonement for sin because he already did that. It's done. When he comes again, it will be to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Now, I love that description. That's a description of what it means to be a Christian, by the way. To be a Christian is to be a person who is eagerly looking forward to the coming of Jesus. You know, one of the mantras, one of the slogans that the early Christians used was this phrase, this Aramaic phrase, Maranatha. And what it means is, Come, Lord, come, Lord. And what it meant, it expressed this desire. Lord, come quickly, come soon. We want you to come back soon. We look forward to your coming. See, the Bible teaches us that Jesus will indeed return one day to judge the world and to save those who are his. And so one of the litmus tests that the Bible gives us to ask ourselves to see where we're at with God is for us to ask ourselves this question. Does the prospect of standing before God one day does that feel, fill you with fear and anxiety or does that fill you with joy and expectation? If you have put your faith in Jesus and embraced him as savior, then that means that he has taken your judgment. He stood before God on your behalf. 
and you have received an inheritance in him with the saints. And so for you, the prospect of standing before God is not something that should fill you with anxiety or fear, but it should be glorious and joyful, something that you look forward to. If, on the other hand, you're a person who says, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of scared. I'm kind of anxious to stand before God. I don't know if I've been good enough, you might say. I don't know if I've done enough. Let me tell you that that response is a great sign that you have not yet trusted in Jesus for your salvation, that you're still looking to other things, other ways to deal with your sin and find salvation, and they won't work. You see, to be a Christian means to have a new status before God, a status which changes your destiny forever. I'll just finish with this. This is a true story. Uh, it, was made in, it was in a book called uh, On the River Kwai, and then it was made into a movie called To End All Wars. And it's a true story about some American soldiers who were in World War II, and they became um, prisoners of war in Southeast Asia. And so they were put in this POW camp, and then they were in this camp, and during the day, they were forced to work, and they were building a road. So they were forced to work every day, and so at the end of one of their days of work, the guards gathered up all the shovels, and they counted the shovels, and what they found was that one of the shovels was missing. Now, that's a pretty big deal if a shovel's missing because somebody, you know, one of the prisoners might be able to use that shovel to escape. And so the guard began yelling at the prisoners and demanding that they tell him, where is the missing shovel? And the shovel, you know, they they wanted to know, where's it at? And so the guard said, no no one was responding. And so the guard lined up all the prisoners in a line. And he told them, okay, you're going to tell me where this shovel is, or else I'm just going to go down the line. And one at a time, I'm going to shoot somebody in the head until somebody steps forward and tells me who took the shovel and where it's at. So this guard, he took his gun and he he went to the first guy in line and he pointed the gun at this man's head and he said, where's the shovel? Somebody better tell me right now. And so one of the other prisoners stepped forward from a different part of the line and he said, I did it. I took the shovel. And so the guard went over to him and demanded to know, where did you hide the shovel? Where did you put it? And the man refused to say anything. And so the guard started hitting him and finally started kicking him on the ground. And finally he shot him and killed him. And later that day, they recounted the shovels And they realized that none of the shovels were actually missing. They had just counted them wrong the first time. They had miscounted. They had missed one. But that man had given his life to save his friends. That man knew that he was innocent. The other people knew that he was innocent. But that man also knew that if he didn't step forward and say something, that they were all going to die. And so he gave his life so that they could live. And I just want you to imagine being one of those men, being one of those men who knew that the only reason you were alive is because someone else had given their life so that you could live. Wouldn't that change you? Even just hearing that, doesn't that change you? Doesn't that make you want to live a different life? Want to live better and be less selfish? But think about how much that would change you and make you want to live differently. If you were one of those men knowing that that there's no way that you could go on living the way that you had had been living before, knowing that this incredible price had been paid in order to buy you some time so that you could live. I want you to know that that same thing has indeed happened for you in Jesus. An incredible price has been paid for you so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be right with God, so that you can face the future with hope and confidence instead of fear. And let me ask you this, how then will you live differently now because of that? Paul the Apostle said this. He said, the love of Christ controls us because we know that he died for all and therefore so that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. What he's saying is this. When you begin 
to really grasp the depth of God's love for you, when you understand the extent of what he's done for you, it changes the entire trajectory of your life. You can't go on living the same way. You can't go on living for yourself. Rather, you have to become a person on a mission, a person living for the purpose for which you were redeemed. And that purpose is something bigger than yourself. I hope you know that. That purpose is to do God's work in the world for his glory and for the good of people so that they might experience that same joy that you have found in him. So may we not only know these things and believe them in theory, but may, they, may these truths affect our lives practically as we go from here today. Right now, we're going to transition into a time of communion. And the reason I want to do it here at the end of service is because we've just considered the blood of Jesus poured out for us and what it means for us. And so I want you to consider that as we take communion today. Have that fresh in your mind and respond to that. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And it says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.